Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jeff Cox, and I'm the Director of Content for Unicord. I'm thrilled to have three excellent speakers joining me today on this ILTA podcast to share their thoughts and perspectives on legal technology trends in corporate legal operations. First, we have Heather Newton, Lead Counsel of Strategy, Innovation, and Administration Division at Wells Fargo. Second, we have Rebecca Brasington, Senior Manager of Legal Project Management and Analytics, EMEA, out of the London office of Reed Smith. And last, but certainly not least, we have my good friend, Colin Levy, the Director of Legal and Evangelist for Malbec. So to kick us off on our discussion today, let's start with Heather with our first question. So Heather, what are the legal technology trends impacting corporate legal departments that you're seeing from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've really seen a real explosion in, in legal tech tools and vendors over the last couple of years, which has been amazing in terms of new options, maybe a little intimidating to navigate for, for busy legal professionals. What I'm seeing is lots of interest in how legal tech can increase work and staffing efficiencies, uh, but a tempering factor is the process of ensuring a seamless integration of tech tools across the company's existing platforms. So individual technologies aren't pursued in trying to solve isolated issues and then creating output that really isn't compatible with other company uh, existing tech solutions. So figuring out how to stack and integrate a variety of tech solutions is a challenge. And then the onboarding process in an area in an era of heightened risk and cyber concerns is also an issue that we're facing at Wells Fargo. So sometimes a, a tech product can seem like an ideal solution, but the product's configuration um, may not be compatible with company policies. And so there isn't a great path forward right away. Um, also advances in, in AI tech capabilities are sometimes moving faster than AI usage and governance policies are, which creates a, a little irony in that um, the speed of technology development creates an inversely longer onboarding process and analysis review as information security and risk management teams have to get comfortable with, um, with novel product capabilities. Um, having said that, more than ever, I'm seeing legal professionals understand that tech solutions really have matured to become credible solutions to many in-house problems. And there's a real interest in understanding the landscape and the players out there to better uh, leverage the market growth for, for internal efficiencies. Thanks, Heather. And to contrast Heather's perspective, Rebecca, as someone working closely with legal departments globally, um, what are the legal technology trends impacting corporate legal departments that you're seeing from your vantage point? Absolutely. Um, overall, we have definitely seen an increased adoption of legal tech from um, all clients that we're working with, even those historically who have been quite resistant to change in this area. Um, for example, um, pretty kind of straightforward run-of-the-mill e-bill, e-signature and contract lifecycle management solutions have now actually become standard practice. Um, and adoption of this technology has really streamlined and, and made those processes much more efficient, which is obviously fantastic to see. Um, we've also noticed an increased interest in requests for transparency from clients, especially, again, those who are not um, particularly interested in 
um, the transparency offerings that um, our firm had in place previous to the pandemic, really, I would say. Um, such examples would be financial tracking dashboards, um, requests for kind of hands-on project management. And lately we have really seen an uptake in those large mandates where um, clients have specifically asked for a legal project manager to manage um, those large mandates to ensure that things are running to plan, to scope, to budget, um, and obviously as efficiently as possible. Um, I would say the, the, the biggest change and shift we have seen is a increase in collaboration with clients. Um, we're really working closely with those client operations teams and procurement teams. Um, and we've noticed that the team, we are closely consulting with those legal department leaders um, just to achieve that greater efficiency. And we see many more requests to align our technologies with the client's technologies just to create that seamless communication channel there. Um, again, clients are really looking to have as much kind of um, interaction with us as possible, just to have that visibility of um, of, of where their where their funds are being spent and what on. Uh, excellent, thank you for those insights, Rebecca. And then, Colin, from your perspective uh, of someone who works at a legal tech vendor and someone who also studies the legal tech industry more broadly, um, what are the trends that you're seeing? So, you know, one of the trends I've noticed uh, fairly. Uh, recently is uh, the sort of platformization of tech, uh, meaning that vendors now are not just offering one function, they're offering a set of different functions all through the same platform, which in some sense is helpful because it allows for uh, a buyer to get uh, a variety of tools all in one package. Uh, however, to Heather's earlier point, it's important to note that you know, sometimes these platforms, because they're all working together, if it doesn't work with your with your business, you know, requirements or what have you, that can be a challenge because you won't be able to use any of the tools because it can't work with what you what your business requirements are or, or your security procedures are. So I also think that another trend I'm noticing is vendors in general being more attuned to the needs of buyers with respect to their security requirements and also be more flexible in some ways with respect to customizing their solutions so as to better accommodate some of the business clients that they're seeking to onboard. Um, however, I also think it's also incumbent, and I've also noticed this a little bit as well, upon the businesses themselves to uh, recognize technology continue to advance and in some ways, you know, be open to, you know, perhaps using a sandbox or a proof of concept to test out solutions before they fully integrate them. And I think that's a very good idea. I mean, quite frankly, if I was buying a complicated piece of technology, I would certainly want to be engaged in that, in that process as well. Uh, I also think that, you know, this, another trend that I've noticed is further uh, sort of attention being paid to data, use of data, uh, security of data, how it's being collected, why it's being collected, and so on. And I also think as technology continues to advance, particularly with respect to generative AI, uh, we're going to see a lot more attention paid to that data point and around what laws and or regulations are put in place, both at the business level, as well as more broadly on the legislative level, 
with respect to protection and use of data with the acknowledgement that data drives so much of what technology can do these days. Thanks, Colin. And you know, now that we've talked about some of the more general trends we're seeing, um, let's dive into some practical ways legal operations teams can use the thing we've all been talking about for the last year, generative AI. Um, Colin, let's start with you. What are some of the practical ways in which you see that legal operations teams can leverage generative AI? So I think there's a lot of different potential use cases. Uh, one, I think that is, I think, used not just by legal operations teams, but by plenty of other teams as well, is the summarization of data, i.e., you know, you've got a bunch of documents you want to summarize, draw out trends from those documents, from that data. That is something that generative AI can do very well and can do very easily and quickly. Uh, in addition, I've seen generative AI being used to develop project plans, improve ways to improve a process, develop the outline of a process and so on. And that is also something that can be particularly helpful as well because humans can certainly come up with that, with these ideas, um, but not perhaps not as quickly or as efficiently as generative AI can do. Um, I've also seen, although this is particularly, I think, specific to teams that are using a solution with generative AI built into it, meaning that it's already been pre-approved and part of their tech stack, but using it to review and analyze data sets um, and draw analytics and trends from those data sets, which I think is particularly helpful. Again, something that humans can do and have done, but perhaps not quite as efficiently or as productively. Uh, but again, that requires, I think, fair degree of security, given that some of this data is often sensitive. So those are some of, I think, the basic use cases. Uh, I would also just add a broader point that generative AI in general uh, is, I think, case-specific and context-specific. So uh, a particularly useful use case for it may depend on what your business needs are and also their level of comfort with using some of these tools. Hmm. And you know, Heather, as, as someone who is actively working on how a legal team can use generative AI inside of a legal department, what are some of the practical ways in which legal operations teams can use generative AI? And also, you know, with more and more technology providers adding generative AI components into their solutions offerings and more law firms seeking to incorporate Gen AI into their service models, what's the comfort level that you're seeing um, for corporate legal departments in terms of using AI and seeing it embedded in tools and services? Yeah, so in terms of how generative AI can be used, uh, corporate legal departments, like uh, most law firms and other legal, legal professionals, are really still figuring out uh, the full range of generative AI um, capabilities, but are really interested in leveraging natural language queries and its unmatched ability to conquer large volumes of data. Um, if it has been approved for use, it's an incredible tool for certain rote activities like reviews, summarization, organization, comparison, data identification, and the like. It's what I would call a starting point, a launching point. Um, most generative AI has been used for uh, in, to sort of displace or to supplement a legal professional somewhere between an advanced paralegal or business support professional 
and maybe a first, second, or third associate. Um, so someone who could turn a first draft of a memo or discovery documents um, on the litigation side or on the transactional side, a first review of some contract comparisons and, and the like. Um, but because of the risks of things like bias, hallucination, training gaps, um, any, any generative AI outputs should always be reviewed by a human and, and subject to that final human judgment and input. Um, the work displacement can definitely drive time and value efficiencies that I think both corporate legal departments and law firms are eager to leverage. Um, so as both parties get increasingly comfortable with the use of generative AI in this space um, and can commit to some safe training um, and, and use of more sophisticated generative AI capabilities within the construct that has been touched on in terms of um, data, data security, risk management, um, confidentiality and attorney-client privileges concerns, those types of things. Um, I think, you know, once we get more comfortable with how Gen AI interfaces with those things, coupled with that human input, we should really start to see an uptick in leveraging Gen AI tools for more, for more complex work. Right now, I'm just seeing it kind of, as, as mentioned, as a starting point um, that can kind of speed along through the initial effort. And then it's, it translates to more of a strictly human oversight into sort of polishing it into an acceptable work product. Um, in terms of comfort level, the biggest concern before uh, legal ops teams or really any legal professional for that matter should consider before using generative AI is to confirm that such use is permissible um, under any governing contracts, confidentiality, confidentiality requirements or other risk management frameworks between the parties. Um, it's a little bit of um, a quilt, a, a patched together quilt out there in terms of legal requirements, um, you know, at the state level, at the federal level, at the administrative level, at the corporate level, at law, you know, at the level of law firm policies, vendor policies, vendor contracts. There's so many competing um, guidance documents that would speak to the permissibility and the range of what would be appropriate for Gen AI, that, that taking a look and checking all those boxes is really important as, as, a, as a starting point. Um, it's, in, you know, being that it's inherently riskier than AI features that are embedded into common tech tools um, that have been around for some time, um, we always want to make sure that um, that caution is used first uh, before leveraging generative AI. Um, so ideally, a team of people with some subject matter expertise in risk management, technology, attorney client privilege, and vendor management would take a look at generative AI usage before it's fully embedded um, or used on company data to make sure that its use is acceptable within corporate policies and, be and best practices. But once that hurdle um, has, been, has been cleared, I think all of the use cases that we just mentioned, as well as things like bots for frequently asked questions and handling some preliminary questions are the ways that we're seeing it used. Um, but there are lots of more advanced use cases on the horizon that we're working toward. Yeah. And 
Excellent. And, and Rebecca, you know, what do you see as some of the practical ways legal teams can use generative AI? And what are you noticing in terms of the comfort level of using AI and seeing it embedded in, in different tools and services? Um, from um, my perspective, I'd just like to echo Colin and Heather's initial thoughts where utilisation is currently very, very limited. Um, in terms of uh, use cases, um, again, I would echo um, everything that Colin put forward. We have run um, pilots with several providers. Um, we've mainly been focusing on US law when we have been looking at the providers and what they can offer. We've been looking at um, summarizing, drafting, extraction of data to create metadata for documents, um, timeline creation, translation, comparison, and questions around the contents of data. Um, there's, there is obviously that appetite there to, um, to jump in and be feet first and use AI. Um, we have noticed in our pilots that um, in the current iteration, the um, the software does have its limitations and do have the limitations. The tools that we have seen do, we have found they don't have that ability to reason um, and they don't have that human judgment required um, to find the nuance in, in the law. Uh, it just kind of appears to be just that slightly out of reach when we've been looking at things in particular, um, the output related to legal research. Uh, but I'm sure things will change, things will turn around very quickly, and in six months' time, I'll have a very different answer to this question. <laughs> well, great. Uh, you know, thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, for our next topic, um, let's talk about something on the minds of legal departments and law firms alike. And I think, you know, something that Heather kind of um, touched on, you know, how do we deal with generative AI when it comes to outside counsel guidelines? But Heather, in, in our prep call, you had some great insights on some of the core considerations surrounding it, in this issue. Um, so how do you think the use of generative AI um, should be governed by outside counsel guidelines and vendor agreements? And what are some of the core items legal departments should consider including in their guidelines and vendor agreements? Yep. So um, the first thing we did is, is we took our existing outside counsel guidelines and looked for uh, ways that we could just embed AI usage and in particular generative AI usage into those guidelines by just including a reference to any AI usage or capabilities uh, right alongside existing paragraphs. I think most people tend to agree that um, it's we don't necessarily need to create a whole new governance framework around AI, um, that many existing um, governance documents and contracts and really risk management um, frameworks can cover AI with some tweaks. So in addition to just embedding AI governance into our existing outside counsel guidelines, we did spend some extra time on in areas such as IP and ownership rights of, of output, um, risk management, as mentioned, onboarding, uh, tools or at least understanding um, any risks inherent with the use of AI and creating internal processes in terms of how those risks would be vetted and escalated as needed. Indemnification. What happens if um, there's an indemnity issue that arises out of work product uh, or some sort of legal, the, the delivery of legal services that creates um, some sort of malpractice or other issue that would trigger uh, indemnification analysis. Insurance coverage. Does insurance cover uh, 
AI usage? Is it silent on that? Should that be a conversation with an insurance carrier? Invoice review, huge area. You know, what are billing guidelines going to um, to look for? Or is AI already used in terms of reviewing invoice um, invoices? Uh, if AI has been used by a client for, for the delivery of legal services, how are the savings being captured? And what, um, how will that be, how will that show up in terms of line items? Obviously, we're not going to have, um, you know, a line item of, you know, some sort of uh, tool that did a first pass of a, of, of a legal memo um, and a billable time for that. But perhaps we would see a, a reduction in the hours that are ordinarily used for, say, um, drafting a motion for summary judgment or discovery questions. And instead of, you know, X number of hours, it's it there's a there's a meaningful drop in the hours because of the utilization of generative AI as a starting point. Um, disclosures, uh, do vendors or outside counsel or other third parties of any kind need to disclose AI usage? If so, what do what is the scope of the disclosure and how will those be vetted internally? Um, and, and will there be a reservation of right to say no to AI usage um, should that be a concern? And even if there's a desire to say no to AI usage, is there a capability or is the product at issue so, um, ha or has it been configured in a way that, that um, a generative AI feature is part of it and you really can't isolate um, that, that generative AI feature from the tool usage itself. And then just leadership escalation. Are there specific things that need to be escalated to leadership about AI usage or gen AI usage? And if so, what will be the process of vetting those concerns that by, they, by the time they get to leadership, um, the, the, the question has been really thought out and um, can be delivered in a really succinct way with some recommendation or guidance so that leaders can quickly grasp the issue and, and opine on it. Um, and so also just, um, you know, one of the ways that we've dealt with this internally is to create kind of a standing working group where we pull together a subject, subject matter experts from um, stakeholders and key areas across the bank that have an interest in AI and, and putting those best minds together with um, sort of a hub and spoke approach where there's a centralization for AI issues, but that are farmed out to the person with the most expertise so they can quickly weigh in and we can assimilate that guidance um, as, we, as we continue to um, improve our outside council governance and our use of AI. What we consider it is an organic and iterative process. So where we've landed today on our outside council guidelines around AI will certainly not be the case a year from now, two years from now, and most definitely not five years from now. So we're going to expect to make adjustments to our AI um, guidelines on a faster pace um, because, because of these the, the changing need of the landscape just to stay current. Well, um, thank you for that, Helen. I thought that was super helpful. You know, for our, our fourth topic of conversation today, let's talk about something front and center for most legal ops teams, uh, doing more with less. So, you know, Rebecca, the tagline about doing more with less is a constant refrain legal operations teams hear from leadership within their own respective companies. Um, what are some of the ways legal ops teams can better use the tech tools they already have 
such as tools within the Microsoft 365 suite to improve communication and collaboration? Um, well, this is a great question. As you say, this is something that comes up time and time again. I think um, first and foremost, the important thing is that everybody in the firm is aware of the tools that the firm has to offer and is trained um, on those tools and training resources are readily available for everybody, whether that be um, kind of hands-on training and then recorded sessions or um, some quick reference cards that's available on a centralized platforms. We have found that that's been super useful over the last six months. Our um, IT dev teams have gone through that process and I for one have found so many more uses for tools such as Teams and um, document sharing platforms that I you know, didn't really know that much about. So startup, I think that's super important. Um, I mentioned Microsoft Teams. This is an excellent tool to kind of centralize communication externally and internally. Um, it also integrates with an array of apps, tools, and workflows. Um, we've found that, um, again, this, this tool really helps us to less rely on emails and have that kind of that channel and that communication, um, instant communication with clients that they've seemed to be very receptive to. Um, again, within the Microsoft suite, we'd be looking at utilizing OneDrive and SharePoint for document management. And again, we found this very, very useful. This um, you know, ensures secure, centralized access to kind of all important files. And also we have that version control where everybody is working from that current version. We've all been in those situations where versions go awry and um, things, go, things go missing. Um, there's also the Power Automate. I think that's a super useful tool that people can get to, to get to grips with. You can streamline those repetitive tasks like document approvals um, and contract management, lifecycle workflows, etc. Um, and then finally, I would say using Power BI and um, that data visualization and reporting and um, getting to grips with that software. Again, that's super useful um, important for the visualization, uh, visualization of key legal metrics. You're making those metrics accessible and understandable for all kind of key decision makers um, at, at any level, really. Oh, thanks, for Rebecca. That was, a, that was a great rundown. Um, you know, and for our final topic today, let's talk about something near and dear to my heart, data. Um, so Colin, uh, starting with you, what are some of the core trends you're seeing in, in terms of how corporate legal departments can use data more effectively? And what are some of the practical instances you see where data is being underutilized in legal departments? Well, that's a great question. Let me start by just saying that I think for a legal department to be seen as a business partner and it's valued by their business, they have to speak the language of business. The language of business is data and metrics. So there has to be basic fluency in data to begin with. Uh, with respect to trends around use of data, uh, certainly, uh, you know, from my perspective as a transactional attorney, um, contracting, uh, you know, contract status of contracts, um, what, you know, how, how have contracts been negotiated? How has revenue been impacted by the contracts in terms of what revenue is being, is being brought in, excuse me, what uh, potential was there for, to grow revenue, renewal dates, sort of those types of things. Um, in addition, there also is the need to sort of collaborate and see who last worked on something when it was last touched, who touched it, what version are we dealing with, that sort of thing as well. And then I think overall, you know, I think something that is underutilized by legal departments with respect to data analysis and data usage 
is just seeing what the data tells you about commonly negotiated agreement clauses, uh, what types of agreements are frequently used, what ones aren't used, uh, where there tends to be issues around privacy or what have you. It's really just kind of understanding the pain points that your business is facing from your, your, your legal perspective and then being more proactive as opposed to being reactive with respect to acting upon those issues. And data can really be very useful with respect to showing you where you can be more proactive as opposed to sort of reacting and playing sort of the role of janitor in terms of cleaning up something that uh, was created without your, you know, being brought in early enough. Yeah. Th thank you, Colin, for that. And, and thank you all for your exceptional insights today and for taking the time to share your perspectives. Um, and for the legal operations professionals and corporate counsel who are listening, uh, thank you for joining us today in our discussion on legal technology trends in corporate legal operations. Uh, make sure to stay tuned for more great educational content from ILTA's corporate content coordinating team and the rest of the ILTA team. Have a wonderful day.